Hey, my name's Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Shelter Cove. And I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I firmly believe you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be inspired, but most of all, that God's going to do something through this message that's going to move you closer to Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. You, you could see the orange glow over the city. You could see the glow from miles and miles and miles away. In fact, in some places of the city, the flames were hundreds of feet in the sky. The warm summer wind was blowing through the city and because the buildings were so tight together and because the construction was, was old, dry, rotted wood, the fire just spread like, it spread like crazy. The people were stampeding through the streets, the tight, narrow, cobblestone streets. They were frantically, panically running through the streets. And if you weren't fast enough, if you could not keep your footing, you would be trampled, you would be ran over, or you would be consumed by the smoke. Off to the south, Emperor Nero, from the comfort of his palace, watched as the crown jewel city of his empire went up in flames. Rome was burning to the ground and for the next six days would do so. Now the rumor around the palace, the talk around town was that Emperor Nero set the fire. He had some people set this city on fire because he could not stand the fact that there were other buildings, other temples constructed to the Caesars who came before him. His ego would not allow that. He wanted Rome to be about himself. And so he set it ablaze. Nobody could confirm or deny it. Emperor Nero, what we do know, wasn't a dummy. He was smart. He knew very well that if he didn't point the finger at somebody and point it quickly, it would go very, very bad for him. And he had the perfect group in mind. The Christians. They were already hated by the Romans. They were already seen as being unpatriotic, as being anti-Rome. They refused to call Caesar God. They adamantly said, that is no God, he's just a man. They adamantly said, all the creation, all the Roman gods that man has created, they're just a figment of your imagination. There's only one true God. They even said that that one true God would one day judge the world with fire. It was the perfect group to blame. And so he did. And the only thing that spread faster than the flames was the outrage against these Christians. They were hunted, beaten, imprisoned. Christians were thrown into pits with wild animals to be torn to pieces for the delight of the masses. They were rolled in tar and pitch, set on fire at Emperor Nero's parties as human torches during his deepest Roman sensualities. You can imagine that the morale and the courage of the early church started to take a hit under this kind of persecution. You can imagine that the courage of these early believers started to wean. And it's in this context that Peter writes his first letter. It's in this situation that Peter pens the words you and I are about to look at. So if you have your Bibles, would you grab them? 
you open up with me to the book of 1 Peter? If you happen to not have a Bible today, don't worry, we've got you covered. We will pass one to you. One of our ushers will get a Bible to you. Uh, you're going to find Peter towards the back. It's going to be right after the book of James. And while we're turning there, let me just introduce myself real quick. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelter Cove. And as Jeremy said, if, if you're a little bit newer here, man, we just love that you're checking our church out. If this is your first time, welcome. Our word for 2019 is fearless. We've been praying and asking God, would you create us to be a people that are full of courage, full of faith, that do not shrink in the face of fear. We want to live out Joshua 1.9, where Joshua says, man, don't be afraid. God speaks this to Joshua. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I will be with you anywhere that you go. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but but I'm finding it's real easy to talk about that verse and really hard to actually live that out. And so what we wanted to do is start a series going through the entire book of 1 Peter, line by line, verse by verse, because this text is filled with practical and theological truth that I believe is going to embolden and strengthen our hearts. So would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We'll pick it up here, 1 Peter 1. We're going to read through 5, but in our time together, we'll, we'll end up covering all the way through 12. Here's how my translation starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Jesus, as always, thank you for these men and women here. Thank you for uh, my brothers, my sisters here. Thank you for those who are, are with us for the very first time, those that are checking church out. Uh, God, I know for many people, it was hard to come here today. Uh, life has been difficult. Uh, sin and brokenness and, and wickedness has caused all the ramifications and all the scars and carnage that it does. And, and I just pray, Jesus, that you would encourage them, bless them. Lord, bless us, help us to see what you have to say. And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. So I've been married now for just a little bit over six years. And there's something that happens when, when you've been married for a little bit of time. It's the same thing that happens if, if you've had a boyfriend, girlfriend for a while. It's the same thing that happens when you have like a really deep friendship. Like a really, really deep friendship. Like the kind where you're able to just walk into someone's house and open up their fridge without asking, that kind of deep friendship. And what, what you learn are, are like the little idiosyncrasies of a person. You, you learn things about people that nobody else knows about because we all kind of know how to be socially proper, but when you really get past the facade, you learn all the weird nuances of someone. 
And my wife has a really weird nuance. I'm going to let you all in on it. She hates, hates putting gas in her car. She absolutely hates it. I don't understand why. I'm seeing some finger pointing happening right now. This isn't meant to convict you yet, all right? We're, we're going to get there later. Um, she hates it. I will get into her car, turn it on. She's got a little dial at the bottom that says how far she's got till she's out of gas. And it'll be like, you have six feet until you are out of gas. I'll be like, baby girl, you got to put gas in your car. And she just goes, I, I don't like to do it. Now, here's why I tell you this. A wise man once told me, as a preacher, Chad, if you speak to the broken, you speak to the downcast, you will always have an audience. I'm going to guess that in a church this size, for everyone that will watch and is watching online, I'm going to guess a lot of you are running on fumes spiritually. I'm going to guess that the gas tank is about empty. And here's all that my hope is for today. My hope and my prayer for us today is that the text we're going to look at by the Holy Spirit of God would fill the tank back up. Now, I'm going to just pray and ask that the Lord would encourage and strengthen your heart, that you leave here strengthened, encouraged, not by, by my preaching or my style or my words, but by the theological biblical truth we're going to look at today. Because, man, life just has a way of sucking the spiritual vitality out of us. We got to fuel back up. We got to put gas back into our soul. And so here's the first gallon of gas that I want to try and pour into the soul. Jesus can save and use people like Peter. This text starts off Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. That phrase, that sentence is pregnant with a lot of backstory, with a lot of history to it. If you don't know Peter, let me try and introduce you to this cat real quick. Peter is one of the first disciples that Jesus picks. He's a fisherman by trade, blue collar worker, rough, scruffy man hands. The guy works out in the sun, works out on the water all day, good sailor. Jesus calls him, hey, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And Jesus, and, and Peter goes, Peter goes with him. No other disciple in the Bible is praised by Jesus more, and no other disciple in the Bible is rebuked by Jesus more than Peter. He is a man of unbelievable highs and colossal failures. And I relate to that. You, you want to know what some of my weakest moments are? After really spiritual high times. Peter has these unbelievable successes and then falls flat on his face. And yet, what I see through his life, through the trajectory of his life, God grows this man into an unbelievable leader. Here's what I mean. You go to Matthew 16. Jesus is asking his disciples, who do all the people say that I am? A lot of confusion about who I am. All the other 11 chime in. You're this, you're that, you're a prophet, you're Moses, you're Elijah, you're all these things. And then he flips the script and says, who do you guys say that I am? Crickets. Except for Peter. Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. Mashiach, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Man has not revealed this to you. God has shown this to you. And then check this out. Seven verses later, 
Peter didn't even make it 10. Seven verses later, Jesus rebukes him and calls him Satan. So I've done a lot of stupid things in my life. I'm praying Jesus has never called me Satan. You get to the end of Jesus's life. He sits down with Peter and says, Peter, you're going to betray me. Peter has the audacity to say, nope, not me. Ride or die, Jesus, I'm going with you to the end. And he starts off. The the guards come down to arrest Jesus. They shackle him up. Peter draws his sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. Now, I'm not good with a sword, but it seems weird to aim for the ear. What do you think Peter was really trying to do? I think he was trying to hack that guy's head off. You're going to touch my rabbi? You're going to arrest my master? I'm going to kill you. Jesus says, put your sword away. What are you doing? Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given to me? Picks up that man's bloody, dusty ear, heals him, says, lead me away. Peter and John are the only ones to follow. Peter sits in the courtyard, warming himself by a fire. It's cold out. And some hours pass by. He's starting to see the writing on the wall. It's not going to go well for Jesus. And a little unassuming, innocent girl comes up to Peter and says, aren't you one of Jesus's disciples? No, I never knew the guy. He's ready to cut a dude's head off. And a couple hours later, a little girl asks him, do you know Jesus? Nope. He denies Christ two more times. Him and Peter make eye contact. He realizes what he's done and weeps bitterly. You ever feel like you have failed God to the point where you weep bitterly? Do you think Peter in that moment thought there's no way God could ever want me back? We see John 21, Jesus finds Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord. Then feed my sheep. He reinstates Peter. And what happens over the next couple of decades, Peter grows into this ferocious man of God, this unbelievably courageous man of God. He will stand before skeptics, unbelievers, haters of the gospel and boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus up until the point where he stands before a Roman tribunal and they say, you either shut your mouth or we're going to crucify you. He goes, "Looks looks like it's crucifixion. My only request, hang me upside down. I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Savior. That's courage. Here's why this is fuel for my soul, strength for my soul. If God can take a flip-flop, inconsistent, impulsive guy like Peter and grow him into the rock of the early church, there's hope for us. He can do it in us because we're flip-flop, inconsistent, impulsive people. He can do it in us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The second gallon of gas I want to pour into the tank today says this. We've been chosen. We've been chosen for salvation and sanctification. Now, I'm going to guess that there were two words in here that caused a lot of you to start sweating and get a little bit nervous. The words probably were elect and foreknowledge. And this word here, chosen, you've been chosen by God, that immediately starts making you go, uh, I'm uncomfortable, I'm not sure what to do with this. 
We're going to handle it. We're going to talk through it. Here's what the text says, middle of verse one. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's like Turkey, Asia Minor, right? That's that whole area. Verse two, according to, here's that scary word, the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So this idea, sprinkling with blood, this is an Old Testament picture. The priests would dip their fingers in blood and sprinkle it against the altar, sprinkle it against a holy sacred text. Sometimes the people are even sprinkled with blood. It was symbolic of being purified from your sin. So what Peter's saying is God Almighty has chosen you to be purified from sin, to be saved, but to not just sit in your salvation, you've been saved unto sanctification. That's a fancy Bible term for maturity. You are growing in your faith. This is one of the ways you can tell if you've really been saved. You start to see progression in your obedience. I did not say perfection. I did not say that you just stop sinning outright because then you're lying and that's a sin. No, there's progression. You've been saved for this. Now let's talk about the two words that are probably freaking you out. When you hear election, when you hear foreknowledge, you hear predestination, doesn't that make you go, well, what about free will? What about our free will, Chad? What do we do with that? There are two camps of Christianity that you're going to find, two, two big ones. Uh, one is called Calvinism. The other is Arminianism. Maybe it's called Wesleyan, uh, Wesleyan thought as well. Uh, the Calvinists are going to, to lean very heavily on like predestination, the sovereignty of God choosing. And you'll see in your notes a couple of verses that they love to go after. Uh, these are verses that are, are biblical, good, and right. Um, but oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the Calvinists will highlight that verse at the expense of what you see on the other side of your notes, what the Arminians will preach on. They will say, hey, no, man has free will. God wishes that all be saved right? God has called all men to repentance. So we don't have time to go through all those verses today. They're, they're there for your reference. What I want to do is just show you what the Bible has to say. Listen to me. The Bible unapologetically teaches both God's election and man's free will. It just teaches those two existing together. Now you may be saying that doesn't make any sense. How could God's election and man's free will exist together? Doesn't make sense. Guess what? You're right. It's a brain buster. Here's where I think we feel some of the rub. We're trying to understand how an eternal, perfect, holy, omniscient God interacts with fallen, temporal, finite creatures. It's like a horse and buggy trying to figure out how a Tesla works. There's bound to be some things that are just missed. There's bound to be some things that don't quite go one-to-one -one and correlate equally, right? So rather than this be just all academic and all brain melting, how does this actually encourage the heart? How does this fuel up the soul to continue to follow him? We'll say it like this in your notes. This doctrine... This doctrine teaches us, this is really good. You're going to like this. <laughs> it teaches us, first and foremost, 
that we can rest. We can just rest in the security of God's salvation. We can just lean back in what he has done for us. When I say that God has chosen his people, what I mean is that millions, I mean billions, I mean trillions and trillions, quadrillions of years ago, he had you in mind. Not abstractly, not vaguely, not just some amorphous blob of who you are. He knew you. He knew what your face would look like. He knew how your voice would sound. He knew what your laugh would sound like. He knew every single word that would be on your lips before you ever took your first breath. He knew every single day you would ever live before you ever took your first breath. He has known you forever into eternity past. You. Which means you have never ever, ever surprised God. What you are going through right now does not surprise him. You want to know what's really cool? He chose you knowing full well just how messy and complicated you would be. Y'all don't say amen, I'm walking out of here. (laughs) He chose you despite you. (laughs) That's wonderful news. That is a warm blanket to the soul because if God has chosen us, who's going to pull us out of his hands? If quadrillions of years ago he said, Chad's mine. He's dumb, but he's mine. I'm going to save him. I have chosen him to be saved and to mature in his faith. He is not going to stay in his dead foolish ways. I will lead him to life that is truly life. He was saying that billions and billions and billions of years ago, knowing full well everything I would do. It's good news, way good. The third gallon of gas that I wanna pour into the soul, the resurrection secures an incomparable hope for us. Here's what verse three says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without a doubt, the single most important doctrine that helped move me towards faith in Jesus was seeing that the resurrection was not pie in the sky mythology. It was not feel good believism, but there was real hard evidence that Christ really came back from the dead. Let me just share you, share with you a little piece of that evidence. All throughout the New Testament, the apostles never call people to believe in Jesus, never call people to believe in the resurrection because we told you so. Hey, believe in Jesus because just believe blindly. Don't ever question anything. They never ever do that. Their appeal all throughout the New Testament is we were eyewitnesses. There's 500 eyewitnesses in Jerusalem. You can ask Joseph of Arimathea. You can ask Simon of Cyrene. All these people saw Christ die, saw him resurrect from the dead. You don't have to take our word for it. Fact check us. That's their appeal. That's 1 Corinthians 15. 
So if the apostles are lying about the resurrection of Christ, shouldn't Christianity have died in the first century? Yeah. What do we see on the flip side? It explodes despite the imminent threat of persecution and death. Church, you need to know the resurrection is not just some myth that we believe. It's not some symbol that never really happened, that you're just coerced into believing. There is sound evidence, reasoning to believe that the, that the resurrection really happened. And because this really happened, it anchors hope for us. The, the first hope that I want to tease out that Peter explains here, he says, we've been caused to be born again. God has caused us to be born again. We'll say it like this in your notes. He gives us new life. Because the resurrection has happened, new life is offered to us. Here's what I mean by new life. You ever had times where you do something that you wish you didn't do? You liars, none of you are nodding your heads. <laughs> I already know the answer. Of course you have. It's a rhetorical question. Of course you have. How many times have you sworn up and down, that was the last time, I'll never do that again right back to it as a dog returns to its vomit, the Proverbs say. You want to know what new life means in Christian terms? It means there is a power from on high to resist sin like you never could before. There is a power from on high to change the motivations of the heart, to change the thinking of the mind. The Holy Spirit of God does this. New life, born again. Being born again doesn't mean you said some prayer 50 years ago, but you never really meant it. That's not what it means to be born again. It means power from the Most High is regenerating you. That's not all. The resurrection has secured for us an eternal heavenly inheritance. Look at what Peter says here, verse 4 to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Oh, church, this past week, man, I've just been trying to daydream about what heaven's gonna be like. I've just been trying to let my mind drift and think about what heaven's gonna be like. The text here says that it's imperishable. First Corinthians 15 says we're gonna inherit new bodies in heaven. Some of you suffer from chronic pain. There'll be a day where that ends. I have heartburn all the time. I have to take medicine for heartburn. There's coming a day where I will eat all the heavenly pizza I want and never have heartburn. Gosh, I can't wait for that day. These bodies, no matter how much you work out, no matter how many blueberries you eat, no matter how much you stretch at night, you're going to decay. There's coming a day where that will stop. No more decay, no more sickness, no more tiredness, no more sore joints. We will have bodies fit for eternity. The text here says that it's undefiled. Try and wrap your brain around this. No more sin. No more corruption. No more backstabbing. No more scheming. No more gossip. No more impure thoughts. No more impure actions, impure motivation. Only innocence only purity, only righteousness, and that it's unfading. You want to know what's going to happen in a couple of months? We're all going to get some cool, sweet Christmas gifts. And then about three weeks later, you know what's going to happen? 
we're not going to give a rip about those Christmas gifts. It's going to become mundane like it always does. You get the iPhone 11. This thing is sick. Can't wait for the iPhone 12 now. Everything fades. Try and wrap your head around this. In heaven, we will ever increase in our joy and delight of God. It will never grow old. There's a pastor who keeps a list. He, he calls it, don't cry for me. He wants it read when he dies and when he has his funeral. And on the list, it says, don't cry for me because I, I married the love of my life. I saw my kids born. I had $150 stake. You know, he's got all these things listed. And then at the end, he says, don't cry for me because if you're reading this, I'm home. I'm home. Oh. God, that you would make our hearts homesick for heaven. God, that you would, you would help us to yearn more for the things of heaven than the flashy little trinkets of this temporary life. The resurrection also secures perseverance. Perseverance of the believer. This means God's not going to leave us high and dry. He's not going to abandon us. In verse 5, you're going to see the tension between God's sovereignty and man's involvement. Look at this. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for his salvation to be ready to, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God's power is guarding us for salvation, but through what? It's through our faith. Well, is it God's power or our faith? Yep. It's exactly what it is. What this means is that because Christ has resurrected from the dead, Spirit of God working in us now because the wall of division has broken down, He's not going to leave you to the wolves. He's not going to expect you to sanctify yourself. I hate to break it to you. You're the problem with your sanctification. You're in the way of what God's trying to do. No, 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 no. Hey, I'm going to guard your inheritance I'm going to strengthen your faith and keep you in my hands till that blessed moment comes where I see you face to face. All because Jesus has resurrected from the dead. We have hope, living hope. The fourth gallon of gas here I want to pour into the soul. Trials teach us to rejoice in salvation. Peter in verse 6 will explain it this way. He says, in this you rejoice, in salvation, in what we've been talking about, our inheritance, in the work of Christ. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, I crack up at this, if necessary. It's necessary, Peter, we get it. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does this text say? This text is saying that, hey, you rejoice in the gospel even though you're going through some hard stuff. And you need to know that when the hard seasons come, and they are coming, it is not for the believer at least, it is not because God is trying to punish you. 
There's no more punishment left for the believer. All condemnation has been taken out on Christ. What God is doing in the difficult seasons for the man or woman of faith, He is teaching their soul how to put more and more of its hope in Christ alone. Because our souls are are prone to, to put our hope in all kinds of other stuff. Things that aren't necessarily bad, they'll just let us down. Family's not a bad thing. Work is not a bad thing. Friends, relationships, hobbies, diversions, all those things, not necessarily bad. You make it your ultimate hope, it will fail you miserably. There's something about God walking us through the valleys and caves of life where we learn to trust and rejoice in him more. You you learn how to grip onto Jesus better when he's all you've got. You follow me on that? Because here's what happens when you come out of the valleys. Look at what verse eight says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You want to know what will teach your heart to love Jesus more? Walk through some valleys with him and find out on the other side that he's good and that he'll take care of you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, I wish I could tell you that that God would grow us and mature us in these profound ways when things are easy, but that is just simply not the case. Trials, the difficulties, they teach us to rejoice in him and him alone. It's not punitive. It's not because God's picking on us. He's not like up in heaven with his magnifying glass with a bunch of ants, he's just burning us. It's not the case. He knows that, listen, if you hope in something other than me, it's going to fail you. I've, I've got to teach you how to anchor your hope in something that will never fail you. So that when that moment comes and we see Jesus, it'll be full of glory. Doubting Thomas puts his fingers in Jesus' wounds. He falls to his knees says, oh, kuriasmu, atheasmu, my Lord, my God. And Jesus says, do you believe because you've seen? I'll tell you the truth. Blessed are those who believe and have never seen. You walk through the valleys, come out the other side and see that God's good. It'll help you believe. The final tank of gas here I want to pour in says this. The prophets, the prophets eagerly anticipated what Messiah would do. And the angels are still amazed. They still are just marveling at what Messiah has done. Let me show you what the text says. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 12. It was revealed to them, revealed to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
things into which angels long to look. So here's what Peter's saying. Do you have any clue how much the prophets would love to know what we know now? This is especially helpful for those of us who have done Christianity for a while and we find the things of God starting to become mundane. We're, we've been desensitized a little bit to the, the power and the joy of the gospel. Peter's going, man, do you have any clue what the prophets would do if they know, if they knew what your kids are learning right now in Sunday school? They would pour over the scriptures. They were writing things by the spirit of God going, how on earth is this going to play out? How on earth is God going to accomplish salvation for all mankind? How on earth is God going to dwell in the hearts of men? Like for them, for a person to approach God, there was one time a year they could do it after a laundry list of purification rituals and they practically had to put on football pads because God's power was so overwhelming it would kill them. If they saw us today, boldly going before the throne of grace, they would be staggered. You mean to tell me God Almighty came down in the flesh, bled out for us? Are you kidding me? Peter's like, the prophets were so concerned about figuring out what we now sometimes take for granted. Let's not take for granted salvation, what's been done for us. And then he throws this little jab in there. Angels long to look into this. What does that mean? You got to try and think about it from the perspective of an angel. They don't ever receive forgiveness. They look down on these weird, hybrid, spiritual flesh creatures called humans. And they're well aware just how fallen and just how, just how enslaved we are to sin. Like they are well aware how, how enslaved to death we are. They can see a spiritual condition that's hard for us to see. But we love to think, no, I'm all right. I think I'm doing all right. The angels can see your spirit is decaying under the rot of sin. And then watch this they see God Almighty start to woo that dead soul unto salvation. They see that dead, decaying soul all of a sudden have the breath of God breathed into it. And it comes to life. They see that rebellious, treacherous little human now bathed and draped in the righteousness of Christ. They see the spirit of the Almighty King dwell in that little rebel and start to rework them and rewire them, they look down from heaven going, can you believe what is happening? Can you believe what God has done for them? How merciful, how gracious is the king? So for those of us that have been walking with the Lord for a while and it's started to just feel a little dry, a little numb, oh, that the Lord would restore to us the joy of our salvation because the prophets desperately wanted to know what we know. Angels from heaven are looking down right now, baffled at the goodness of God. 
here's how I want to put a bow on this. I, I imagine there's two groups in here. One of you, you're newer to church, you're newer to Christianity, you wouldn't call yourself a believer. I want to just simply invite you to make the choice to trust in Jesus today. I want to give you the opportunity, we'll do it in just a little bit, to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. And your notes will say it like this, for those who haven't believed today, begin believing. And then for the other side of the spectrum, the other side of the coin, to my brothers and sisters who have believed in Jesus, but man, you find yourself in a real difficult season. Here's my encouragement for you today. Would you find strength? Like, let's find strength in salvation and what God has done for us. This is how Peter wanted to encourage his readers. It wasn't with feel good, pat on the back, believism, hey, you're awesome. It was, no, let's look at what Jesus has done. Now, you may be sitting there and as you pack up and get ready to go, because it's dinner time, I'm hungry, you're hungry. I'll get you out of here, don't worry. As we close, you may be sitting there going, Chad, you have babbled on for so long and it did not encourage my heart one bit. Fair enough. Here's what I want to tell you. Go to the Lord. Go to him. Take some time tonight. Put your phone away. Carve out 45 minutes. Carve out an hour. Lay your heart out before him. Plead with him. Pray with him. Get it all out. There is no substitute for being in the presence of God. It will refresh and encourage your soul in ways I cannot. Let's pray. God, we love you. And I just want to pray now, Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts. And I pray, God, for those who are here today and would say, man, I am not a believer. If that is you, there's no magical prayer. There's no magical religious uh, practice you have to do. It is simply you with sincerity in your heart and mind coming before God and asking him to forgive, asking him to save you. It is you simply saying, Jesus, save me, lead me in new life. The best way I know how, I believe you resurrected from the dead. I want you to save me. And for my brothers, for my sisters here, heavy-hearted, burdened by the trials and the difficulties of life, help us, God, to find strength in you and in you alone. Jesus, thank you for how good and wonderful salvation is. Thank you for the future hope of heaven and eternal life with you. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. Give us courage. We need you more and more every day. I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Uh, real quick before you go, if you made any kind of spiritual commitment, some kind of spiritual decision today, right outside these doors, there's a little table area where there's going to be men and women available to pray, to talk with you, to walk you through the next steps of your decision. Would you check that out on your way out? We love you guys. God bless. Help us out with some candy. We will see you next weekend.